Flint Hill Baptist Church exists to glorify God by gathering, growing, giving, and going in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Find out more at flinthill.net. Well, if you will, you can take your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 10 this morning. We'll get to that in just a moment. I just wanted, I just wanted to take a moment here at the beginning of our time together this morning. I couldn't help. Um, I saw Tony out in the parking lot. And, I, and I, y'all met, some of y'all probably already know, Tony had a pretty significant surgery. He had, how long have you had these headaches? For a long time? Over a year, right? And he had surgery. And what did you tell me in the parking lot? No headaches anymore. Can we praise the Lord this morning? Thank you, Jesus. I know, I know, I know y'all give a little hand clap of praise. I don't know, I wanted to do some foot stomping out in the parking lot. I was about to have a come apart when we come up in here. Because, I mean, uh, we just praise the Lord, amen? And thank God for doctors, and uh, we just praise Him, however God chooses to bring that healing. And I just rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and I know many of you prayed for Him and prayed about that situation. Um, and just want to praise Him, man. Look, I, the song that comes to, up in my heart, I see old George King... Uh, Singing that song, Look What the Lord Has Done. I don't know if y'all ever, know, ever sung that song before. Miss Judy, looks like you have. There you go. Um, it's a good song. You can't help, you can't sit still and sing that song. You're just moving around a good bit. But it's a wonderful day, isn't it, when we can praise the Lord? Amen. The Bible says every, everything that has breath. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got breath. Go ahead. Turn to him. So praise him. Glory. Hallelujah. I know, I know, I know, I know. I get a little. Open them up to Acts chapter 10. So we're going to see what the Lord has done. I call, uh, we're still in that Encountering God series, and I call this Pentecost Encounter Part 3. I couldn't help, um, I couldn't help, um, in my mind, I went to some kind of like movie sequel or something like that. And I was thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking Pentecost, the conversion of the Gentiles, you know, or something. Sounded better in my mind, probably not outspoken. Some things. You know, you know, if I was really fancy, I could have this like, you know, about like when you were here. You remember when the, we, we talked about Pentecost on the first time and we had the, the sound of the wind? I know some of y'all think, yeah, it was cheesy. That was cheesy. I got you. I'm with you. Uh, but I'm telling you, on that day, it would have been something else, wouldn't it? I kind of, I, I wish sometimes when I read the Bible, if I could have been there on that day. I mean, if I'd, woo, that would have been something. I'd probably been scared to death like the rest of them, freaking out what, what in the world's going on. Um, so here in Acts chapter 10, a lot has happened in this early church. I mean, we jump a few chapters, but there's been many years have gone by uh, since Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 10, we're going to meet a man by the name of Cornelius. And actually, there's a whole... And actually, what I want to do, if it's all right, I know this is a lot of scripture here in Acts chapter 10. But let's kind of walk through this together. If you don't mind, I'm going to read this scripture uh, do my best. I'm reading out the NIV. Follow along with me. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devoted and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision and distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up. As a memorial offering before the Lord. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon 
the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel Lord spoke to him, uh, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier who was, uh, who was one of his attendants, and told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. You know, one of the first things I want to I want to kind of bring into this, it's a long chapter here, but there was some preparation that was going on here uh, for this encounter that was about to take place. And when we see the man, we meet Cornelius here in this chapter 10. Cornelius is uh, a centurion in the Roman army, uh, or maybe, maybe some of your translations, it might be an Italian cohort or regiment. Uh, and, and in that, in, in other words, he is an officer in the army, a legion, uh, we know uh, from, from some of the commentators, a legion in the Roman army would have been about 6,000 men, and they broke that up into 10 cohorts of about 600 men each. So a centurion, which he is, would have commanded about 100 of these men. So he was a military man. And these centurions were known to be like the backbone of the Roman army. So he was a commanding officer, and he didn't get there by chance, but he was a strong, responsible, reliable man. So he was somebody who, who obviously understood authority, and he understood responsibility. And, uh, and we also know uh, here at the beginning here that he is a devout, God-fearing person. And uh, now in saying that, uh, what does that mean? I mean, you got to remember, Cornelius is a Gentile by birth. He grew up in a pagan culture. He would have worshipped pagan gods. He would have lived in a, in a life of idolatry and would have thought nothing of it. Uh, but yet he came, he, obviously at some point in his life, he had come to the realization that all of this is not real. You know, I mean, you read the Bible. I mean, we know that, you know, we profess to Jesus, the one true living God, but the scriptures uh, are very clear that there are cultures out here all around us, even so today, that have all kind of idols and uh, idolatry. And the scripture says very clearly, it's empty, it's void, it's meaningless, it's lifeless. And the truth is it's that, that Cornelius had come to this place where he realized all of this is uh, false. But, but it was more than that. Not only was there a void in his life, and he looked around and saw that it was meaningless and void in this, in this world of idolatry, but he looked over here to the nation of the Jews, and he began to see things happening over here in this Jewish heritage, this Jewish culture. And he began to recognize, and at some level recognize, you know what? They know the one true living God. Read your Bible. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. Over and over again, God makes it known to, to the Jewish people, to the nations around them, that there's one true living God. And he had come to that place, and the Bible says he was devout and God-fearing. In other words, he had abandoned the pagan religion and had been moved to worship Jehovah God, to acknowledge him. Uh, and not only did he acknowledge him in devotion, but we see here in the scripture that he prayed. In, in other words, he took on uh, the Jewish culture of praying at certain times during the day. That was part of their faith. And so he took that on, took that very seriously. Not only that, but he would have probably taken on the dietary restrictions. He would have probably limited himself from all these delicacies that he saw people around him. And he would have restricted himself because in the Jewish culture, those dietary restrictions were very important. There was a way of, uh, of, of the Lord saying, you're different. You're not like everybody else. And there were certain rules and regulations. So he would have adopted those things. Not only that, but he gave alms or he gave uh, generously, the Bible says, to those in need. In other words, he would have given monetarily uh, to those that were without, and particularly those that were of the Jewish faith. He would have given generously. Now, all that being said, there were certain things that he could not do. 
I mean, there were certain places he was not allowed as this Gentile. There were barriers and restrictions and hindrances. He wouldn't have been able to come in certain places of the temple. He would have been, in other words, his worship of God was from afar. He would not have been able to come near, wouldn't have been able to give sacrifice, wouldn't have come in 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 that Jewish religion. He wouldn't have been able to come in to be intimate with the Lord at all. So he had to worship from afar, look in from the outside. Um, Now what's interesting here is this, and 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 we glean this from the scriptures, Cornelius, as religious as he was, was was still in need of salvation, as we understand it from a biblical perspective. Cornelius was sincere in his obedience to God's law as he knew it. He probably even fasted. He was generous. In every way, he was a model, and this is what Wiersbe would say, of respectability, and yet was not a saved man. The difference between Cornelius we see in the Scripture, and so many people even so today, he knew that that his religious devotion was not sufficient to save him. In other words, it moved him, it drew him, it brought him in, it opened up the door of his heart, but he knew he was still lacking. Augustine said it many years ago, there's a, there's a God-shaped hole in the side of every one of our hearts, even so today, that only the Lord Jesus, only the God, very God, can feel. So even though he became to be very religious and looked from afar, he knew that he was lacking and missing something. So, so obviously we know that he's continuing to pray. Uh, in fact, in the scripture it says that he was uh, in the uh, ninth hour, which would have been about 3 p.m., which, which we, we know was an important time to pray according to uh, earlier on in Acts. What, Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter's going up at this time to pray. It was a standard time. Some said an important time to pray. But it's during this regular time of prayer that Cornelius respond, uh, uh, hears and reveals and is shown this vision from the angel of the Lord. Um, he, now, let, let, let me say this. Um, just gleaning from this... It's oftentimes in those regular, routine, sometimes we might think of them as mundane times of praying, seeking the Lord, that God just chooses to to do something special. In other words, when we have those set times early in the morning, late at night, whenever your time is in your drive time, God God will use those regular set-aside times to pray, to seek Him, to open up our eyes. The one thing that I would say to all of us, it's the same thing, uh, in Peter's, in just a moment, while he's up on the rooftop praying, that as he's praying, God begins to reveal and prepare even his heart for what was about to happen. So there's a preparation time, and big chunk of this is prayer, seeking the Lord. In fact, I could say to me and you, even so today, one of the ways, one of the primary ways that God uses to get us prepared to do what He's about to do is for us to get on our knees before Him, seek His face, listen to His voice. Your will be done, not my will. How do I adjust my life to what you want me to do? Even so today, tomorrow at work, as I'm living my life, it's in prayer. It's in Holy Spirit of God revealing, convicting, uh, moving in my heart to move me to do what God wants me to do in that moment. So I just say this, we glean from this, right? Uh, Now we also see that God was not just preparing Cornelius, but he was preparing Peter as well. Look in verse 9. At this at about, and the Bible says about noon, right, the following day, as they were on their journey. In other words, Cornelius, uh, let, let, let me say this, as a military man, when the angel of the Lord told him what to do, he does it. Obedience was the key for him. Authority. I, he understood authority. He understood respect. He understood obedience. As soon as he told him, he sends them out to go do it. 
Uh, I think it's interesting here that in this whole situation, that it's the Jew, Peter, going to the Gentile. It's not the Gentile coming to be. Now you can say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I mean, go back to Acts chapter 1. Where are we going to be witnesses throughout Jer Jerusalem, right? Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You're going to go forth. And this is really a fulfillment. When we get to this passage in, in, in Acts chapter 10, it is a cornerstone, a fulfillment of, the, of all the prophecy. We'll get to that in just a moment. But it, this is a turning point for the church. It's significant in the life of the church. We're the church, the body of Christ, even so today. And so it's very significant that Peter, the Jew, goes to him into that, in that situation. All right, now look, God not, not only prepares Cornelius, but he's preparing Peter. As I mentioned earlier, verse 9, about noon on the following day, uh, as they were on their journey to approaching the cedar, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into this trance or vision. Verse 11, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth, birds of the air. Then a voice came to him and says, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And in this moment, Peter's kind of shocked. I mean, now listen, he's in prayer and he's kind of in this place of vision, this trance as it might be. Like he's kind of caught up in the moment. I mean, it's nothing different. I don't know if you've ever been praying before and the Lord put something on your heart and you kind of, kind of lose yourself in a moment and all of a sudden you might be thinking about things you weren't necessarily thinking about in the moment. And all of a sudden God begins to maybe open your eyes and you kind of drift into those places. That's fine. That's kind of where he is in this moment. But he's having a conversation in this prayer time. He hears, he hears this voice saying, get up and go eat. He says, no, no, Lord, verse 14, no, surely not. No, I can't do this, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything pure, nor unclean, and I'm not going to do it now. The voice spoke to him a second time, said, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Most likely every time he probably said, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing it. But there was a reinforcement. Three times the, this voice comes to him and says, get up, kill, and eat. And immediately the sheet was taken back. Now, while Peter was wondering the meaning of the vision, he's kind of caught up in this moment trying to figure this thing out. At that same moment, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, stopped at the gate, called out, and asked if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Now, we see that God's preparing Peter for this moment as well. We know that he's in prayer. We know that prayer is a place of preparation. We understand that. But let me remind us, God already, was already at work in Peter's life. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, most commentators believe that from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to this moment right here, it's been about 10 years. Now, I know when we read the book of Acts, we just kind of roll through it, and almost like the next day, the next day, a couple days later, da, da, da. but it's been, a, it's been a while since Pentecost. It's been a while since that moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit baptized them. They spoke with other tongues. That miracle took place. 3,000 were brought into the family of faith in that one moment. Now some 10 years later. And during that time, God is working in Peter's life. How do we know that? First thing is this. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Now Simon the Tanner, I mean Tanner wasn't his last name. That was his profession. Right? And so what did he do? He tanned hides. I mean, you know, some of y'all are hunters in the house and y'all... Whatever you think of that, I mean, so some people, they'll tan that hide, right? I watch that show Mountain Men. I like seeing that guy, he's tanning the, the skins that he gets. He does all this stuff. That was his profession. Well, to an Orthodox Jew, according to the Scripture, to, you read in Leviticus, 
That would have been, you, that would have been considered unclean even to go into his house. And then you'd had to go through certain procedures just to be, be made clean again. Right? Just by being in contact with somebody in that profession. So we see where's Peter at? He's staying at Simon's house. So we already see here, we can conclude there, that God is already working in this young man's life, moving him to a place to understand that some of the dietary restrictions, some of the requirements back here are now kind of losing their place in my life. That God's doing a new thing in my heart, my life, and moving me to a place maybe he didn't really understand where he was going. So we kind of sense that. Uh, in one sense, with, with him staying at Simon's house. But we also know this, that in um, verse 23, Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. In other words, they showed up, he comes down, and then Peter invites them into the house to spend the night. No, no Orthodox Jews, self-respecting I mean, it would have given lodging to Gentiles, especially soldiers in this hated Roman occupation army. It wouldn't have happened. So there's something here going on in Peter's heart. Not only does he stay at the tanner's house, but now he's welcoming these Gentiles into the house. And the, and the scripture is pretty clear. It says that he invited them in as a guest. In other words, that word literally means he brought them in and entertained them, fed them, uh, uh, spent time with them. In other words, some commentators would say he gave them the red carpet treatment. He brought them into the house. Probably much like you would if you had guests coming into your house. Right? You're going to clean it up. You're going to make it look good. You're going to prepare a meal for them. Probably not going to get the beanie winnie out of the cupboard. You know what I'm saying? You're going to do something nice for them. Right? You might even take a moment, do a little something extra, run to the store, go get some food, go bring it on. You know what I'm talking about. Probably make some banana pudding for them if you got time. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You're going to treat them nice. Probably let them sit in your recliner. I know someone said, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know. You, depends on who it is. Right? Not even give them the remote to the TV and let them choose. You know, you're treating them nice. And I mean, that's what the indication is. He brought them in. He didn't just say, y'all stay here, but he treated them um, special. He embraced that moment. I mean, just to, even, just to even think that he would do that as a Jew is a major step. It's a clear indication that God has already been at work for these years in Peter's life. And what about this vision? What about this vision, this sheet that comes down from heaven with all these animals, four-footed animals? I told you already about the dietary restrictions, and Cornelius would have known them very well. Peter lived them. In fact, you see in his response to this vision that he says, No, Lord, no, Lord, um, I would never, ever do that. I, in fact, he says, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, I mean, that comes straight out of Leviticus chapter 11. I mean, they had dietary restrictions. There were certain things that were clean. There were some things that were not clean, pure and impure. Uh, now, why the food? I don't know. Wearsby says, well, some, in some sense, he was hungry. Remember that in the Scripture? Maybe the Lord just took where he was and just kind of spoke to his heart at that moment. I don't know. God could have used anything to teach him this lesson. But he's hungry. We know that. So all of a sudden, he has food pop into his mind. I don't know about you, but I'm... I like food, Brooke. I'm just being honest. So some, I mean, you know, I don't know. In the basic needs. I mean, I don't know. There could be something going on. But there certainly is a God's trying to teach him something about clean and unclean, right? And, and so relating to the dietary restrictions, he knew quite well. In fact, in the first century, uh, I mean, in, in the church even, 
there were already struggles and tensions. If you're with me on Wednesday night, you see this in Ephesians chapter 2. The struggle and the tension between the Jews and the Gentile. It didn't just start on this day. It had been going on. And it doesn't get any better in the next few years, even in the early church. Why? Because this, this, this um, distinction between dietary restriction was a major deal. That was a big deal for the Jews. No, we don't do that because that's who we are. You do it because that's who you are. Now we're all coming together under the same house. And you got some that do and some don't. And there's this friction and this tension. And so this was very prevalent. And Peter... I mean, you see by his response, I mean, it is rooted deep. I mean, think about it now. He's in prayer. God is revealing this to him. In the moment of that, maybe he thought the Lord was testing him. Maybe that was what's going on here. But I mean, I mean, I, in this moment, God says, get up and eat. And he's like, ah, I'm not doing it. Maybe he thought there was a test going on. I mean, I, you see his response. You know what I'm saying? When the Lord says, do it, your choice is yes or no. I mean, you know, and he's saying No. Now, here's what Wearsby does land on. God's not just changing Peter's diet. He is helping him to see something. There's a bigger picture going on. Y'all know this, right? Y'all read this passage. God's starting to change the whole program. What do we mean by that? The Jew, please hear this, the Jew was not clean and the Gentile unclean. In fact, we know this in the Scripture, both Jew and Gentile both are unclean before the Lord. This is a major milestone in the proclamation of the gospel, particularly in the Jewish area. Paul himself, you remember this? I know you know this. Let me get there real quick in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, what, verse 21. Paul writes, But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. All this Old Testament, all this scripture proclaims, testifies about what I'm about to say. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus alone. I'm going to add that to it. I mean, that's exactly what he means. To all who believe, there's no difference. And that comes from a Jewish Christian to a Jewish and Gentile audience. There's no difference. Just because you're a Jew... Doesn't mean you have special privileges before the Lord. In fact, if you want to have assurance of your salvation, it's through faith in Christ alone. Alone. Later on in the same book in Romans, y'all know this passage very well. Romans 10, 9 through uh, 12, 13. He says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here it is. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord, the same God, the same Lord is Lord of all. And richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, everyone... Jew, Gentile, does not matter. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God's, you know, what about this vision? God's not just changing their dietary restrictions. He's, he is transforming this whole process of promoting and preaching the gospel. And, and honestly, it's just living out what he already says. I'm giving you, God, the Holy Spirit to empower you to be witnesses to everyone. All people, all places. 
All races. Doesn't matter where you are, how much money you have, where you live, doesn't matter what part of the world. All people are in need of salvation. And friend, there's only one place you'll ever find salvation. The Bible's clear about this. It's only in Jesus Christ alone. I know sometimes I sound like a broken record, but friend, listen to me. It is clear as clear can be. There's only one name under heaven by which any of us, boy, girl, man, woman, here or anywhere in the world, will ever be saved. Let me remind you, Cornelius knew this intuitively, instinctively. Even his praying, even in his giving, even in all the things that he was trying to bring into his world, he knew it wasn't enough. Now the good news, it was driving him because he knew there was, he was lacking. There was a void deep inside of here. And I would submit to you, if you don't have Jesus in a relationship, there's a void inside your heart. Religion is not going to fill it. You'll get dry, crusty, old, mundane. It doesn't fill it. There's only one who has life, living water. And that's Christ alone. Now, now, the next thing here in verse 17. Let me look here, Madonna. I'm glad we got a clock back there. Keep me, keep me focused here. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, these men sent by Cornelius found out where he lived, and he comes down. Peter, I'm moving on, verse 19, Peter was still thinking about the vision, and the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. The second part of this I want to say to us is the journey encounter. In other words, God the Holy Spirit is in the journey. Our Christian faith is not a destination. If it was, we'd be in glory right now. But it's a journey that we're on. And this is where the Lord's really tugging at my heart. It's a journey. In other words, Peter is on the rooftop. God reveals to him in this vision. He's not sure what it is. But then the Spirit of God tells him, get up. Three men are down there looking for him. He doesn't tell them who they are. He doesn't tell them where they're from. He doesn't fill in all the blanks for him. He just says, get up and go. Don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. In other words, uh, uh, an, another rendering of that was don't doubt. Don't, don't, don't have any doubt. Make no distinctions. I mean, that's kind of the concept there. He has no idea what he's about to walk into other than the Spirit of God said, get up and go down and go with them. And so when he goes down, he realizes real quick, well, they're a Gentile and I'm a Jew. What's going to happen there? And he, But he knows the Spirit-led, Spirit of God is leading him to receive them and to listen to them and to go with them. And I would say to all of us here today, just like Peter, I love this. The journey we're on is Spirit-led. It has to be Spirit-led. God the Holy Spirit leading, guiding, directing. So much Scripture to walk with the Spirit, be led of the Spirit. That's why we have God the Holy Spirit within our hearts and minds today. He, he gives us... Wisdom in Revelation helps us to understand the Word of God. I don't mean just in some grandiose theological way. I'm talking about practical, everyday living. Walking with Him. Think this thing called life. That's the journey we're on. And it's Spirit-led. And I love this. But it's also, what I would say, Spirit-enlightened. Spirit-enlightened. In other words, Peter doesn't really understand fully what's going on at this point. In other words, look at verse 28. Uh, I fast-forwarded a little bit, I know. They spend the night, the next day they're on their way. uh, Some of the commentators say it's about 30 miles away. They've got to walk to get there. Now, they're hoofing it pretty good. They made it in two days, or approximately they're rolling in the next day. I told Paula earlier this morning, it would probably take me about six days to get there if it was me walking. But they obviously were in a little better shape than I am. 
So they take off and they get there. But it, what I love about this is we don't know a whole lot about what's happened on the journey in those 48 hours and that two days there. But we know that the Lord is working in Peter's heart. He went from hearing a vision, seeing a vision, really not understanding it, embracing these Gentiles, bringing them in, treat them as a guest. But as he's walking in obedience to the Spirit of God, God illuminates and enlightens his understanding. Gives him, gives him clarity from what he didn't know to now what he does know. And I love this. That's the same for us. Look at verse 28. We're talking with him, Peter. Oh, oh, let, let me say, he gets to Cornelius' house. Verse 27, talking with him, Peter went in found a large gathering of people. And he says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or even visit him. But God has shown me when? On the journey. As he was walking there. God has shown me what? That I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I, when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection in this matter. So I'm saying to you, it was in this moment. I mean, God is doing a work in Peter's heart on this journey. He's enlightening him, helping him to understand. In other, in other words, there were some barriers that hindered Peter from moving in this direction. I call it heritage. In other words, there were traditions. There were ways of thinking that hindered him in understanding what the Lord was about to do. Even though God had prophesied years before throughout much scripture that this salvation was not, yes, came from the Jews, but was for all people. I mean, go back to, go back to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes originally. He quotes from Joel. He preaches these words. In verse 21, I mean, this is straight out of Joel. It says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, not just all Jews. Everyone, go back to Solomon's prayer at the temple. It was for the nations. Go back to Abraham when God revealed to him. He said, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. It was always, always, always. Yet at some point along that road, the Jewish people became really focused about them. And rightly so. God had blessed them and chosen them, called them out, elected them. If you want to. I mean, yes, they were special and unique. Yes. But for, for God to do what was God about to do in the church, God had to open the eyes of Peter and the leadership in the church to see that this salvation was for all people, and yes, even Gentiles. And it's a process, it's a journey. So I, but now, now let me be clear, there were real barriers and hindrances. In fact, I mean, you can see this, and I know we don't have time, but even in read chapter 11, because it's kind of a reinstatement of what happens, because when Peter gets back eventually to Jerusalem, some people aren't happy with him. They're not. They're, they're, uh, word got around. Word got around that Peter, what Peter had happened and what Peter had done. If Peter went up to Jerusalem and circumcised believers, that means the Jewish believers criticized him because he went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him and visited with him. So even in the church, what we call the Jerusalem church, even in the early church, there were, there were people that were so passionate about their traditional way of thinking, they couldn't see a new way. Yet there was no way the Gentiles were going to come to faith in Christ unless somebody, and that's Peter, in the leadership began to see a new way. But yet it was a process. Listen, we're 10 years in the journey. And yet God's been working in Peter's life and he brings him to this place. So there are real traditional barriers. There's things that can hinder our thinking, but also there's theological barriers. And we see this. Turn, oh, I'm turning my, my Bible. Verse 34. I know I'm moving forward. 
Now Peter's in the house. They were all there in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded to tell us. Can I, I just want to pause here just a minute because Cornelius knew that Peter was coming. He had sent for him. Probably got word that he's on his way. I mean, you know, again, they're walking. I mean, it takes a little while. Some, some, you know, some commentators say that someone may have ran ahead to inform Cornelius, hey, he's coming, he's going to be here, da, 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 what about a time? That could have happened. It, none, none, nonetheless, what I love about Cornelius and what I see uh, just brought out in this passage is, is the influence of the father in the home. In his household. Because it's not just Cornelius and a few folks. He gathers up his whole family. He pulls them all together. And they're all there. They're eager to hear what Peter's got to say. Why? Because daddy is passionate to hear what Peter's got to say. And I know some of you are here today and you may not have had the best of fathers. And I am so sorry about that. But I want to remind all of us that we have a heavenly father that loves you with an unconditional everlasting love. That is unbelievable and overwhelming. And I know it will blow your mind, but I want you to understand that. But, 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 but let me speak to us men in the house. There's a special role that God's given for us to lead and to develop and influence our families in faith in Jesus. And, and Cornelius just doesn't hold back. He was a man who understood responsibility and authority. But at this point, he's like, man, i got to do everything I can to gather together with this in this moment, because he sensed in his heart he was about to hear something that's going to change his life, and it does. But it wasn't just him; his whole family, whole family. Can I just remind us? Caesarea was the capital in that Syria, Roman capital in that province. In other words, there's a whole lot of people there. I mean, I, just step back with me just a moment. It's hard sometimes. We get tunnel vision. We kind of sit down in it, but step back and see what the Lord's doing here. The, 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 the church is about to move into this new era of preaching the gospel to the Gentile nation. And where does he start in this major capital with this leader in the army and his family? Cornelius isn't a preacher. He's not some vocational preacher. He's just, just an ordinary man who's a soldier. But he knew something was wrong. Something, there was a void. And he comes and he listens. Can you just imagine what just happened? Don't you know? Don't you know he just went out there and told them hundred men? Why would he tell them hundred men? Let me tell you what Jesus is doing in my life today. Can't you just see that? We don't have record of that. We don't know what Cornelius did. But why would he do that? Because God changed his life in that moment. I guarantee you he went out of there. He couldn't help it. God knew what he was doing. He got... Cornelius and his whole family, I can imagine the the children, the the kids, the other people there went out from that place. You can just imagine another Pentecostal moment, Acts chapter 2, all over again. Going forth. Sometimes there there are real barriers, theological barriers, ways, and I've said this in verse 34, Peter began to speak and he says this. Now look, here's what's happening in the moment. Even in the moment of this gathering, God is working in Peter's heart. As he begins to speak, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts all men from every nation who fear Him and do what's right. I mean, it's just an amazing, glorious moment. The walls are coming crumbling down in Peter's heart. The hindrances that hindered him. Not just tradition now. Not just this heritage. But this theological barrier. Comes 
comes crumbling down in this moment. In fact, he says, I now realize right now in this moment that God doesn't show favoritism. I mean, this is a massive moment. I know for me and you were like, okay, well, but for him, this is, a, this is a moment even grander than the rooftop experience of the vision. This revelation brought to him by God the Holy Spirit in this moment on the journey changes Peter's life forevermore. And I would say the church forevermore. So we know it's spirit-led and spirit-enlightenment. And, and let me just remind us that we're on that journey still today. God just really continues to convict my heart. I go back to, if you're with me on Wednesday night, Ephesians chapter 2. That word is we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work. That word is poema. In other words, we're a work in progress. The imagery there is that God is shaping and molding and, and, and doing within us so that He can work through us for His glory. That's exactly what God's doing in Peter's life right now in this moment. We just happen to jump into that. Now, now I'm going to say that. I'm going to move on. We're on a journey still today. God's not done. God's not done. I hope you hear that. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's not done with you. Turn to them right now. They need to hear it. God's not done with you. I know y'all thinking, what are we doing? We're talking to each other in here. It's okay. Sometimes you got to talk to your neighbor and tell them, hey, God's not done. We're still on a journey. They're sitting in our home. There's a work that needs to be done. Let me remind all of us. You know what that work is? Living out the great commandment and the great commission. Love the Lord with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And love people enough to make disciples. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's not done. I love this. In this moment, they're gathered there to hear from Peter. Now, if you will, y'all come on up here. I'm going to move. I promise you, I'm going to land this plane in just a minute. Oh, I'm not. I won't, Roy. All right. But I, what I love here is in this moment, the people are gathered to hear from Peter. They really don't know what all Peter's about to say. They just know that, this, that the angel of the Lord comes and he listens and he believes it's from God and God sent Peter and Peter's not real sure what all's happening and God's working in Peter and then all of a sudden he shows up and they're in this moment in the house. And in this moment, I just love how God the Holy Spirit leads in this moment. But you know what he leads Peter to do? I mean, we're going to see it right here. You know what God reminds Peter? In this moment, God leads Peter by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Some ten years later, the gospel's still going forth. Amen? The power of God unto salvation. If you want to see a change in a person's life, share the gospel. And so he goes back to it in a very simple way and reminds them, you know, the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened in Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism of John, priest, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with Holy Spirit power. And how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And we're all witnesses of that. We've seen it. Everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. And you know what? They killed him. They hung him on that tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. 
He wasn't seen by everybody, but we're witnesses. We've seen him. We ate with him. We drank with him. And he rose from the dead.